The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke. Caesar Augustus issued a decree for a census of the whole world to be taken. This census, the first, took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to be registered. So Joseph set out from the town of Nazareth in Galilee and traveled up to Judea, to the town of David called Bethlehem, since he was of David's house and line in order to be registered, together with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to have her child, and she gave birth to a son, her firstborn. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them at the inn. In the countryside close by, there were shepherds who lived in the fields and took it in turns to watch their flocks during the night. The angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them. They were terrified. But the angel said, Do not be afraid. Listen, I bring you news of great joy, a joy to be shared by the whole people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. And here is a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly with the angel, there was a great throng of the heavenly host praising God and singing, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace to men who enjoy his favor. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. On a special solemnity like this, there's so much that can be said. Last night I was in Calliope and I was speaking with them about my recent experience in the Holy Land. I was on pilgrimage with Bishop Michael and a bunch of people from around the place. And, and I'll say a little bit more about that in a second because I've brought some things back with me. Um, we don't have incense here, but I brought back frankincense and myrrh. And we were burning that in the incenser um, at, at the different masses. Um, and I, obviously we can't burn gold in an incenser. But I brought nard as well. I was in one of the shops and, and the guy said, Sir, sir, this is pure nard. And um, you'd be familiar with when the lady, um, who is it, Mary, who puts the, the pure nard in Jesus' feet as a sign of devotion. Well, we were burning that this morning. Um, anyway, I've already lost my train of thought. <laughs> Today's a day where so much could be said. One thing I, I shared with the people was the irony of this celebration. Because it's a birthday. What could be more mon mundane or commonplace than a birthday? Everyone here has a birthday. You all celebrate your birthdays. But there's something very unique about this birthday because we don't just have one song. Your birthday has one song. Happy birthday to you. Jesus' birthday has song upon song upon song. And they're all very rich with meaning. They're all concerning the cosmos. My birthday song doesn't concern the cosmos. It concerns me having my piece of cake, blowing out my candles. So there's something unique about what we're celebrating. Pope St. Leo the Great says that this is the birth of life. It's the only birthday. It is, it is the birth in which every other birth starts to get some kind of sense. Anyway, we're here to celebrate, I think, the, the great scandalous irony that God would dare to come so close to us and would dare to become knitted up in the human story as frail and messy and broken as it is. 
there's so much latent in this story that, that escapes us, but I think only now that I've been back to the Holy Land for the second time, thankfully, that, that some of it stands out to me as, as deeply, deeply meaningful. So I want to share some of that with you. Firstly, um, the Gospel opens with this figure, Caesar Augustus. Who is he? Well, he was the most powerful person at the time. A great, great leader. Caesar could say, do this, and in Syria or you know, somewhere else in the world, it would happen, because he had that power. But Luke is, is showing an irony here. He introduces Caesar, he introduces um, Quirinius, he introduces this, this great kind of civil event that's about to take place for the first time, the first census. And then he zooms in on this family who no one knows, in a place that no one cares about, Bethlehem, and this, this unknown people. Like, who is Joseph to anyone? No one cares. But he's central here right now, Joseph and Mary, and this child that they're having. So immediately there's a, there's a, um, a contrast that Luke is trying to put in front of us. In Bethlehem, and anywhere that starts with Beth, it means house. So Bethlehem is house of bread. Um, in Bethlehem, there's a place where the shepherds stay. I hope I get all these names right. I believe it's called Beth Sahur. Beth Sahur means the house of those who keep vigil. These were the shepherds. And as we hear, they, they were keeping watch at night. The very place was named after their activity. They had to stay up late and they had to watch over their sheep. You know, sheep are funny creatures. They don't know when to stop eating. So um, it's funny that Jesus puts all these parables in front of us about sheep and goats. Goats can take care of themselves. Sheep can't. Um, you might think we can take care of ourselves, but Jesus is actually telling us, no, you're not meant to be a goat off wandering and foraging and, and um, catering for yourself. You're part of my flock. I will lead you to green pastures. I will guide you. I'll keep you safe from the wolves, all of that. Jesus is, of course, the good shepherd. Anyway, we see this, um, this scene with these shepherds and with the family, you know, not too far away. Now, these shepherds, let, let's say they were Jews, which, which I suppose they were. They would have been ritually unclean because they were animals. So they would have frequently missed the Sabbath. They would have frequently missed all of the, the high celebrations they would have liked to have had. Their job, their sacrifice, if you like, is keeping watch over this, these sheep. There were different shepherds who were involved in ritual. These were the temple shepherds. Now, take note of this because this is lost on us. But the, the field shepherds had their sheep, right? And their job was just to, to take care of them, to feed them, to make sure they don't eat too much. It was almost a gift to take them to pastures that were a bit sparse so that they wouldn't you know, explode in their stomachs. Um, but then you've got the temple shepherds. And the temple shepherds didn't have a big flock of sheep. They had one sheep, a kid without blemish, which was intended for sacrifice. And they would wrap it in what? Have a wild guess. Swaddling cloth. That was the symbol of a lamb of sacrifice. So when the angels appear to these field shepherds who can't participate in the religious life, and they say, you're going to find a kid, a, a child, not a, not a sheep kid, a human kid, wrapped in swaddling cloth, they would have said, that's weird. Why would that be the case? This story is full of strange stuff. 
So they go and they find precisely that. Where do they find him? It says there was no room for them in the inn. So they went um, and stayed basically with the animals. Jesus is in a manger um, where, where the cows and stuff are eating. Um, you know, sometimes our minds are so subconsciously filled with religious imagery that we forget what the thing actually meant. For example, if you ask a normal person, a common person, what's a Samaritan? They might say, oh, someone who's really nice. <laughs> That's not what a Samaritan is. Um, for the Jews, the Samaritans were disgusting. They were like a cultural, a cultural um, bastardization of Judaism and pagan stuff and weird philosophy and weird culture. They were like really ugly people. That's why the story means something. Because this ugly, ugly person is showing the charity of God. That's why the Samaritan is, is a powerful symbol. What's a manger then? It's not a crib. It's not where a baby would usually be. It's where food for a cow or an or a animal would be. See, once again, house of bread, swaddling cloth. Who is this child? Something weird is taking place. And everyone's looking at each other trying to figure it out. I mean, the angels say it clearly, but still, it's, it's a bizarre sight. Very, very weird phenomenon. So anyway, God, as usual, goes out to the, to the random no-ones, which in a way is us. We're just, we're just people here. He goes out and he calls us to the very heart of the mystery. You profane um, shepherds who have nothing to do with village life, you come and make the sacrifice of all sacrifices. You're going to participate in something far greater than any of the temple shepherds did. You insignificant family who are totally unknown to this you know, wealthy, powerful king of the time. You are going to birth the king of kings who reigns eternally. His kingdom has no end. There's more I want to say, but I might, I might, at least on the gospel itself, I'll pull up stumps there. I want to show you this icon that I picked up in Bethlehem Square. I hope I'm not wrong in saying this, but it's my impression that icons are not a huge part of our Roman Catholic heritage. They're more of a, if, if you're familiar with the, the Orthodox tradition, the Eastern, um, Eastern Christian traditions, icons are a big part of their devotional life. Um, Catholics are familiar with the rosary, you know? All of us probably have a rosary hanging off our review mirror. I hope that's not the only place it hangs. I hope it hangs in our fingers as well. Um, but, 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 but our Eastern brothers and sisters wouldn't typically pray the rosary. It's a, it's a Latin kind of prayer. They would have a beautiful icon of Mary, and they'd gaze at her, and they'd ask her intercession. Um, when we look at an icon, we say that it is written rather than painted, because even though it's obviously been painted, you don't look at it like it's a painting. You read it. This is like a commentary on the Gospels. This is like a homily itself. There's so much symbol running through it. Like the whole, the whole scene is there. You've got the shepherds, the kings, the angels. Um, I don't know who that is. She's bathing Jesus. Maybe it's Mary's... I don't know who it is. <laughs> I should have asked the guy. Um, that mysterious figure next to Joseph, I asked him, who's that guy? He said, that's the devil. That's the, the, the spirit of darkness sowing doubt in Joseph's mind, making him worried about what's happening. He doesn't understand. He's, he's unsure about what's happening with Mary or whether he can be a part of it. So, so um, Joseph has his own cross to bear in the, in the whole thing. Anyway, I'll leave that somewhere where you can see it. But please have a good 
a good long look at it and enter into it if you can. There's something sacramental about the icon. It's not just a picture. It's, it's an encounter with the living God. I want us to close our eyes for a second because, as I said, I had a beautiful experience in the Holy Land, the place where this story we've heard and, and the story we know, I hope, all took place. And that story, like a running river, has sort of trickled all over the world and it's even touched us here in Agnes waters of all places, um, such as the Incarnation. God enters in and then cannot be contained. The experience was good, but it was bittersweet for a few reasons. Um, one is the kind of endless precarious state that the Holy Land is in. It's a torn country. It's a country that doesn't have the peace one would hope it has. It's constantly in this tussle politically, culturally. In Bethlehem, there was only about 1% of the population that's Christian. I think in Jerusalem, it's only about 2% Christian. You think this is where the very story took place. How, how, how does it not bear fruit? At most of the shops that I went to where I was buying Christian stuff, um, the shop was, was usually run by a Muslim family, which in a way is beautiful. You know, it's lovely that they can be there. But in another way, it's, it's, it's a tragedy because they can't tell the story that hopefully we are telling. They don't believe in that story. They believe in some of it. They don't believe in all of it. Um, when we look at Jesus, he's such an anomalous character that it's tempting to, to change who he is. And this happened in the ancient world, and it happens today. Just think of the, the conversations that you've had with your own friends, family, co-workers, whatever, about Jesus. And the way that, that the person of Christ is sort of diluted to make, to make things a bit less uh, anxious, a bit less awkward. You know, um, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, but um, um, I believe he was a beautiful teacher, a wonderful man. You know, a great, a great, a great model for us. Or, or as as the Muslims say in their own book, you know, Issa, Jesus, he comes up in the Quran quite often. Um, we believe Jesus was a was a wonderful prophet, an ethical man. He cared for his mother, he cared for the poor. Um, but but if you read the Quran, which I've only recently been looking at, because I want to. I don't want to speak ignorantly. I want to know what, what is said in there. It continually undermines the Trinity. It says, no, this is, this is a horrendous, impossible belief. The Trinity is at the core of that Christian belief. If we don't have the Trinity, our baptism is utterly meaningless. This priesthood that I'm trying to exercise is completely meaningless. It's a weird little drama. Um, so who is Jesus then for us? Is he a fable? Some, some strange story that's in the, in the culture for God knows what reason. Jesus for us must be the startling reality of God. God eternal, God who had no beginning, God who has no end, God who has no needs, but creates us for the sheer purpose of allowing us to share in his divine life. St. John of the Cross begins his poem, one of, the, one of his poems on creation. He says, in the beginning was God in perfect joy. You think that's a strange way to start the story, but that's where John of the Cross, this mystic of our tradition, wants to start the story. Because God wasn't lonely or something silly like that. God is pure, gratuitous gift. And he desires that you would taste and experience and, and be filled with who and what he is.
who is he? I'd invite you just to close your eyes and, and come to a conviction in yourself about who you believe this little baby, this little uh, lamb wrapped in swaddling cloth, this powerful speaker who spoke not just wise parables, but who spoke creation into a being. Who do you say he is? In a moment, we're going to stand and profess our creed, but I invite you, if, you if, if you're willing to do this, don't stand until you're willing to make that creed really from your heart. And it's on the cards that you have, so have a, have a glance at it. And when you're ready, let's stand and together profess our creed.